Broadcasting from the Mid-Migration Outfitter Studios, this is the Finding Fur and Feathers Hunting Podcast. How much direction are you getting from the governor? Minnesota DNR had reintroduced him into this area. I don't know, maybe you didn't want me to tell the story on the show, but I'm going to tell it anyway. I knew you were going to go there. I'm going to close the entire hunting season. Oh, really? The Finding Fur and Feathers Hunting Podcast is brought to you by Onyx. Know where you stand with Onyx. By Haybell Heights on Devil's Lake. Visit haybellheights.com for more. By Ottertail County. Find your inner otter at ottertaillakescountry.com. And by Lake of the Woods Tourism. Plan your trip to Lake of the Woods at lakeofthewoodsmn.com. Well, snow goose hunting in the spring, or, or even in the fall for that matter, has become one of my favorite waterfowl activities. I think snow geese are, are fascinating. The journey they go through, the big flocks, the mass of massive amount of numbers, and just the resiliency of the species overall. Uh, and the fact that we have to have a season, or, or we've had a season, a conservation order on them in the spring to reduce population numbers. It's just, uh, I mean, they're a pretty hardy bird. And uh, the more and more I learn about them the more interesting they get to me and dan was on a hunt recently in um one of the dakotas we'll say and you guys shot uh, a banded snow over there dan yeah we did it was uh, a pretty pretty unique bird um it's one we probably won't see ever again in our lives we had uh it was a juvenile snow but it had this uh special green tarsal band and if you're a waterfowler you know how special that is to see and we're all pretty jacked up and uh yeah it was pretty special but we didn't know a whole lot about it until we got the banding report and uh it's just they're cool to see and it's fun to get the information on them and learn learn more about them they're considered a trophy but to me that information is the coolest coolest piece about them absolutely so. you know and ban- we rarely see banded snows in general but to see one with a tarsal band now i know your photoshop skills I was like, All right, Dan, <laughs> they're not that good messing well <laughs> that's true ask anybody <laughs> <laughs> i'll tell you uh that's a pretty special bird to see right and then you know when we were talking to our buddies about it a little bit we learned you know it's a young bird gosh i didn't know there were tarsal bands going on um snows or young snows so i did a little bit of research i talked to nick dockin who i've gotten to know over the couple over a couple years and he's up in alaska doing research up there and then he said this is the guy to talk to he's the guy behind this research and it's vj patil and he joins us now here on the show he's a wildlife biologist with the u.s geological survey up there in anchorage alaska vj thanks for coming on the show yeah thanks for having me so how do you get excited when you see reports when like oh my gosh that was a bird that i that i banded and that's where it got shot wow that's really cool do you get excited about that like like hunters like what dan was talking about is me personally i love learning about the migration patterns and where these birds have gone what they're doing learning about their habits how old they are Uh, i love learning about that stuff do you is it is it work for you or do you get excited about that stuff oh no i love it it's one of my favorite parts of the job I mean, I will say I tend to see more bands than probably the average hunter since we're putting out, a, you know, a thousand or so a year on the species. But, yeah, the the band reports that we get from hunters through the reportband.gov website and the bird banding lab are a huge part of my research. It's how we learn about their, their survival rates, the effect of harvest, where they're going during the wintering grounds. And like you said, we get 
to learn about how long they live and find out that some of these geese are living for more than 20 years. And yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a huge source of information and it's one of my favorite parts of the job is interacting with hunters and getting to see pictures of these birds that I've known as goslings on the breeding grounds and seeing what happened in the rest of their life. And, you know, I don't get down to the wintering grounds that much. So I think it's a two way street. I get to learn a lot and I get excited whenever a, a hunter gets in touch with me. So this tarsal ban, this bird uh, was banded. Uh, it, it was a young bird. What was the data on it, Dan, again? Do you remember? I'll pull it up here. Um, so you can see there, it's, well, it was juvie banded last year in uh, July 31st, 2021. I was too young to fly. I was a female and banded up in, uh, those are some cities I don't know how to pronounce. <laughs> somewhere somewhere in Alaska. North Slope. We'll just say I that. can say North Slope. It's the other ones I can't say. But yeah, uh, pretty neat to see. Yeah, and then shot in North Dakota. You do a thousand of these a year or so. Do you ever, is there ever a band report that comes back and like, I know him. Like, I remember banning that bird. <laughs> I don't know that I've remembered a single ban just because, you know, there's so many cycling through. Um, but yeah, so that was that was last year, and that's near the village of New Exit. Um, and that is at a breeding colony on the Colville River Delta, uh, which is on the North Slope. Uh, it's about 50 miles west of Prudhoe and Dead Horse and the oil fields. Um, and it's a pretty young snow goose colony uh, where uh, really from you know these didn't start nesting there until maybe about 2005 oh really and since yeah it's a very young colony that's just taken off and exploded i mean it's growing at something like 30 percent per year based on the aerial surveys and some of the banding data that we've got wow. um so yeah we're really interested to understand what's going on with that population and what's driving that rate of increase and how they're spreading out using the habitat and how the snow goose population is starting to affect um, other birds in the area and that sort of thing. So that's, is that basically uh, the reason for this research that's going on then right now? Well, uh, that is sort of the focus now. I will say um, this project, the banding project that that bird was banded for, um, started as a project to understand really climate change effects on waterfowl breeding in the Arctic. So we wanted to look at um, reproductive success and mortality uh, associated with year-to-year -year changes in the timing of when the snow melts and when the birds are able to start nesting um, and when the vegetation starts to gr green up and grow and how that affects the goslings. Um, but as I said, when we first started this work, there were hardly any snow geese nesting um, in this delta, in this population. And then as the snow goose population established and started to take off, we realized that that was really what we needed to focus on and understand, you know, how that would affect brant and other uh, species that are nesting in the same area. That's fascinating. So that's really the right now. So do you, do you think that the reason that they, they started breeding there is because of what they're doing across the tundra? Are these like mid-continent snow geese? Are they just spreading out because of what they're doing to the tundra? the breeding grounds up in the tundra that's a great question i will say we don't really have the answer just yet um that's one of the questions that i want to answer the most so i'm working on some population models now using that banning data to try to understand how much of the growth we're seeing on the colville and in alaska is attributed to um alaskan conditions like nesting success in alaska and how much of it is due to immigration from outside and I will say that the, it's still preliminary, but the results we have right now say that we shouldn't be able to get the rate of increase we're seeing unless there is some immigration coming from another population. So, and so, yeah, it it seems plausible that there are central uh, flyway birds that are they're moving west and that that might be 
that may have been what started this colony and what might be continuing to fuel this incredible rate of increase. That's crazy. So I don't have that answer yet. And that that colony started in 05. Is that what you said? Um, somewhere around then. Okay. Um, and actually, for the North Slope in general, um, until relatively recently, there have been hardly any major snow goose breeding areas there. Um, there was a small colony of a few hundred that was near Prudhoe Bay um, that's been around for a long time. But, you know, for decades, uh, the North Slope just was not a major player in snow goose breeding. And the Colville is one of a couple of sites. Um, there's also the Pickbuck River Delta, which is, you know, uh, maybe 50 miles farther to the west, um, that have, or have established just in the last couple of decades and have mm. really taken off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, when you think, when I've thought about Pacific Coast snow geese, those are the ones that come over from Russia generally, isn't it? And then you think of the birds so that come. A, Go ahead. Yeah, so there's two, sort, sorry, there's two sorts of populations that we think of um, within the, the Pacific Flyway. There's the Western Arctic snow geese, which include our North Slope birds, at, but the majority of those um, up to now have been breeding in Canada, mostly in this colony on Bangs Island, which is in Nunavut. And then there's also the Wrangell Island population, which is in Russia. Um, and those birds do kind of mingle with Western Arctic uh, snows down on the wintering grounds, um, but they take somewhat different migration paths. So most of the Wrangell Island birds are kind of migrating down along the coast, whereas our birds are heading east, kind of staging in the 1002 area or around there, for a few weeks in the fall and merging up with these Banks Island birds. And then they kind of head south uh, past the Rockies through the the prairies in Alberta in that area and then kind of split and mostly to go into like California and Central Valley. But some of them go to wintering grounds that are farther to the east where they're sort of overlapping with Central Flyway birds. Okay, this wasn't a planned question, but how, <laughs> how do these birds know where they're going? I, I want to. I think that's a question we nobody seems to have an answer for. Like, uh, is there? Are they using the magnetic poles? Are they using landmarks? Are they following other birds? How do they know where they're going? Is it is it imprints? That's that's a great question, and you know, for different birds, the answer seems to be different. So a lot of birds are able to sort of navigate based on magnetic field lines. Uh, with the snow geese, based on their migration tracks, it, it does kind of seem like they're following these these landmarks where they're sort of heading down along the Mackenzie River Delta and then, you know, along the edge of the Rockies and then splitting down from there once they get down into the U.S. So I, I think a lot of it is sort of geographic and, you know, they they do seem to be sort of um, learning from, the, from their parents. So the, one of the reasons why we put tarsal bands on the um, young females, but not the young males from this population, is because the females will tend to um, migrate back up to the breeding colony where they were born, mm. uh, whereas the the males will sort of disperse and you know go to other breeding colonies once they meet up with other folks on the wintering grounds. Um, so there does seem to be some learning, some using of landmarks, and you know maybe some other things we just haven't learned about yet. Yeah, the women go back. The men like to chase women wherever they're going back to, right? I mean, that. Right. <laughs> how are uh, do snows? Do they? How long do they pick new mates every year, or what? Or is it? Are they? Uh, they kind of. They, uh, they will up? stick with the same mate, but you know, if their their mate is killed, then they will. Yeah. Acquire a new mate. I got a feeling this could turn into a really long interview, so I better because <laughs> I love this stuff. So I'm, I'm going yeah, to keep things. 
let's 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 back up to uh, this current research with that tarsal band. Um, what? Why? Like, how many birds are you banding, and how many are getting the um, like the metal leg bands, and how many are getting the tarsal bands? Yeah. So you know, as I said, we try to band about a thousand uh, new birds each year, and this is a banding program that's been going on for. Um, a little over a decade. We've been banding every year since uh, 2011, except for 2020, where we had to cancel because of COVID. Um, and each of those birds we capture gets a metal band. Um, and then when we recapture them in subsequent years, we can write down the metal band number and get some information about survival and, and fidelity to the site and that sort of thing. And then, as I mentioned, we've only been putting the tarsal bands, the plastic green guys, on the young females. Um, and that's because our main interest was being able to recite these birds when they came up to the breeding grounds. And we just weren't able to do that with the males because they were you know, sure. largely going somewhere else. And we don't like to disturb the birds or add tags or markings to them unnecessarily unless we've got a specific purpose for it. And since that was our specific purpose, we decided we're only gonna add that extra band to the young females since we have a chance of seeing them. So every young um, female basically is getting one of those then? Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. And you know, that being said, although like we did it mostly for our purposes, resetting up north, um, you know, it's still we get a lot of useful information from folks down on the wintering grounds. Even if you don't see the bird or shoot the bird and report it, we have birders who take pictures with their telephoto lens and can give us the combination, and that still gives us great information about the population status and survival rates and all that. What are you using for the metal bands? Are they what kind? What kind of material are they? Stainless or what are you using there? So different uh, types of species will get different types of bands, but we do have aluminum metal bands mm -hmm. that we put on these birds, um, and they last for an incredibly long time. Are neck collars still being used, or has that gone away? Uh, yeah, so neck collars for the most part are not being used for this type of reciting, so you don't see these big plastic neck collars too much anymore. Um, they're, they tend to be a little bit harder on the birds compared to the, the leg bands, and so again, we're trying to minimize impacts wherever we can. Um, we do still use some neck collars that are outfitted with uh, GPS trackers. Um, mm. There's some really incredible technology now where these lightweight collars with little solar panels so the batteries last forever. And um, they can automatically transmit to and send out location data on the cell phone network. Um, so we can get all this great remote migration um, information from these birds. Could you, tell me, the only could you tell me Sorry. where those are right now by any chance? <laughs> that, that'd be great. That's, I actually, I think that study's pretty much wrapped up. I don't think any of the colors we put out are still online anymore. Okay. Um, unfortunately, but <laughs> it is an incredible source of information. I mean, the technology that we've got now is just remarkable compared to a decade ago yeah i shot a, a mallard a couple of years ago that was part of a research study here in minnesota that bruce davis did and he was putting backpacks on a bunch of them and unfortunately he had just put it on about two weeks before the season started and i ended up shooting it early in the season so there wasn't a lot of data but what was but what was there and i apologize to him he goes no this is this is good because we're recovering the equipment first of all but we'll mm -hmm. still be able to take everything we've learned off of that. And the, the, the study was to determine how much hunting pressure actually forced birds to migrate. And so mm -hmm. they were able to determine on opening weekend, the bird traveled about seven miles to another, uh, another marsh 
we figured due to hunting pressure, but then we could figure out what fields it was going to. It was a hen mallard. We figured out what fields she was going to feed in, what, where she was roosting. I mean, you could figure out the daily pattern of this bird, even for the two weeks, it was just a, a wealth of information that was just fascinating. So he sent me a little map with all the all the lines of where this bird went. And then after a couple of days in the Southern Marsh, it flew back to the original one after the hunting pressure, I suppose, kind of died down or, or maybe it got kicked off of that one and pushed back over or whatever the case may be. But it didn't leave. It didn't migrate because of hunting pressure in any case. Uh, so yeah. It, it, yeah, there it is right there. It, and it was so funny because, well, I've told this story in the show before. I don't need to get into it, but I was hunting with a bunch of buddies and one of them, they had gone out to eat the night before. We had gone out to eat the night before and one of the guys left his car keys at the restaurant. So that morning we were getting ready to pack up and head home and he had to go back to the restaurant to get the keys. Well, everybody else on the trip was like, ah, let's go and, you know, have a beer and some lunch or whatever. And I said, well, I'm going to stay here and just kind of hunt, hunt in the morning. And I ended up sending him a picture of this banded, banded mallard with a backpack on it. And they were all uh, pretty jealous of that. It was, it was pretty comical, but um, yeah. And like you say, like we get a lot of information, even just short term behavioral information of you know movements in the habitat from these birds even if they get shot right away so you know we don't want hunters to feel nervous about calling in a bird with with a radio tag or something like that um and i know sometimes folks really want to keep the tag because they want to have a mount with this really cool thing on the bird and most of the folks i know who put out radio tags like that have some dummies sitting around dummy tags so if you call it in, we want the tag back because it's expensive and there's lots of data, but usually we'll be happy to send you something that looks just the same so you can get that mount set yeah, up the way you and, want it. And I got a replica for mine, so that was uh, that was great. And that's important. I mean, uh, all that data, that's important. I mean, obviously you get some from birders who just spot, spot these birds here and there, but you want to hear from people. I mean, that's the whole point. Like hunters basically are the number one source of info for researchers, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, waterfowl banding is really like the, the the largest citizen science research program that I know of going on today. Um, so we couldn't do the analyses that we do and understand the population status of these birds without the input from hunters calling in these bands. So we talked about this relatively new population of snows that you've been researching, and it's been growing 30% a year. And some of that is most likely due to an influx of birds that were maybe breeding somewhere else uh, uh, in the in the northern regions up there. But overall, uh, the hatch has been pretty good. Or how was the hatch this year up there? Um, this year, I actually, I don't know. And or last year, I guess. Unfortunately, we weren't there for nesting last year, so I don't have uh, those numbers. But just based on these aerial surveys that are done each year during the brood rearing period, um, the population, you know, was almost double during the brood rearing period last year from what it was in the aerial surveys the year before. So I think they did before. And you alluded to how snow geese are just incredibly impressive and resilient, and that's exactly what we see. Like every year, they have pretty amazingly high nest success you know the parents are just excellent at defending their nest and and hatching successfully and they just do a good job i mean even without the immigration i think their population would be growing fast because it's great habitat and they're great at what they do so we all know the story of what they're doing to the habitat up in the you know their nesting tundra grounds up there what are they doing what have you seen uh this is probably a great way to monitor what they're doing to habitat being that's relatively new colony up there what are they doing to the ground up there yeah that's one of the exciting things about studying this population is getting to see how these habitat impacts might develop 
I will say that the the environment at this population in Alaska is very different from the environment and you know the populations in Hudson Bay and you know the Central Arctic uh, flyways. So we don't necessarily expect the impacts to be the same. And for the first half of this study period up till now, we haven't really seen major impacts. We've done studies on gosling growth and found that they're still growing at higher rates than most other populations. There's plenty of mm. food for them. And actually, we're, there's some research showing that as permafrost thaws and the coastal um, habitat sinks, it's converting some freshwater meadows into this salt marsh habitat that's their favorite thing to raise their young on. Um, so in a sense, it seems like the amount of food out there for them might continue to increase with some of the changes that we're seeing. Um, but I will say, you know, we've just in the last couple of years, as the population has gone, you know, through the roof, we are starting to see major changes in the vegetation. We've got grazing impact transects set up and, um, to measure long-term changes. And that's going to be the focus of the work this year. And we're just starting to see those impacts. And I'm really excited to look for evidence of habitat degradation in the next couple of years. Yeah, there's a picture and Dan, maybe you can do a quick Google search and find this. There's a great picture and I'm not sure where it came from exactly, but it's a small fenced off square. You probably know exactly what I'm talking about. And you can yep. see it, it looks like a golf course around it. And then it looks like CRP inside there. And it's to show the effects yep. of, of uh, you know, snow geese foraging up there. And I'm guessing that that is from uh, this place called La Perouse Bay in central Manitoba. Um, that was actually where I got my start studying snow geese oh. when I was an undergrad. Um, and that was this, yeah, this colony where the, the population skyrocketed um, several decades ago. Yep. Um, and yeah, you can see that they just totally overgrazed the surrounding landscape. Um, and there what happened was once they had sort of mowed down the vegetation, the um, as the water evaporated from the bare ground, it brought a lot of salt up to the surface. And so it created this sort of salt killed, um, highly saline landscape where the plants couldn't grow back. Hmm. You know, as I said, I'm not sure that that's exactly what's gonna happen uh, at our site. One of the differences is the Hudson Bay area, the ground is actually rebounding because it's recovering from the weight of this massive ice sheet sitting on top of it during the ice age. Whereas, you know, at our site, the ground is kind of sinking so that this area that can have salt marsh vegetation is continuing to expand. Um, so there's there's some interesting differences, but as I said, just in the last couple of years when we went back, we were starting to see these sorts of changes where we, places that had knee-high vegetation went back and it looked like the geese had took, taken a weed whacker to it. Yeah, huh. that's amazing. I'd never heard that about the salt coming up through the ground like that and keeping any new growth from happening. Um, that's, that's interesting. What did you, so did you, were you always interested in snows or what got you started in that field? Yeah. So I actually sort of came to snows through my interest in Arctic biology, uh, as opposed to, I know a lot of folks get into this kind of Arctic work through their interest in waterfowl. And for me, it was the other way around, but yeah, when I was an undergraduate, I was looking for a summer job and I had a professor who had this field camp up in Hudson Bay where the snow goose colony was and he took me up there and that was my first introduction to the arctic and my first introduction to snow geese and just you know what an incredible species they were and how profoundly they could affect you know who, the environment who was that them. uh that was a guy named evan cooch um, okay. he's a population ecologist who's been really involved in um this piece of software called mark which is one of the main tools we use for analyzing mark recapture data 
Um, but it's also that project is led by a guy named uh, Robert Rockwell with the American Museum of Natural History. Rocky, you may so be I've, familiar I've, with it. I've had him on the show before, and he, okay. <laughs> I, I thought doing that snow goose research would be fascinating until, until he told me he'd been in like six or seven helicopter crashes. It's <laughs> 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 like, wait a minute. Yeah. I haven't been quite that, that unlucky, but I also haven't been doing it nearly as long as he has. So, yeah. So I was just, you know, a, a dumb little undergrad who got to tag along on that project years ago and that kind of hooked me. And then I did a bunch of different kinds of work working with other Arctic species and circled back to snow geese when I got this job at the USGS. Hmm. It's uh, it's interesting research, and I don't know how much uh, you, you yeah I, I'm sure you're aware of it, but I don't know how much your research involves uh, this avian influenza, this uh, avian flu that's really affected uh, snow geese and Canada geese and other waterfowl all the way. I mean, uh, hunters throughout the Dakotas and and up and down the flyway here in the states just saw. Um, dead birds everywhere or birds falling out of the sky. I mean, it, it, it definitely seems like this year it's been a bigger outbreak than years past. Yeah, that's my understanding too. And I will say that the disease monitoring is not really my area of expertise. So I'm trying to coordinate closely with some other folks in my office who do uh, a lot of the wildlife disease monitoring to understand what's going on with this outbreak and what it might mean for these birds and the breeding populations. But we're definitely going to be um, keeping in touch with the disease folks and trying to make a plan so that we can do our work safely up on the breeding population and make sure we know what to look for so we can understand how this outbreak is spreading. Uh, but it's something for hunters to keep an eye on as well. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's wild to think that, I mean, how long do you think these birds had it before it becomes fatal for them? I mean, just to, to fly that far and then just all of a sudden fall out of the air, are they you suppose they're catching it on the way down from other birds it just kind of keeps snowballing as they migrate i really don't think i can answer that question very yeah. well i don't know exactly at what point they got it but you know there are a number of different strains of avian influenza that have different levels of lethality or severity for the birds um and you know there's sort of like our flu there's always like something that's circulating in the population but as for what's driving you know the sudden outbreak of this more lethal strain i really don't know you were part of some research last fall about influenza a viruses in alaska wetlands is that right yeah and i was really just assisting with some of the um survival analyses or the analyses to understand how long the virus itself was surviving and this was some work that was led by my colleague Andy Ramey and other folks in my office, the Alaska Science Center, where they wanted to know um, if and for how long some of these avian influenza viruses could persist in the landscape. And so they're actually taking viruses from birds, from swabbing, swabbing birds' cloacas, and inoculating them in natural ponds out in Alaska. And what was kind of amazing was we were finding that some of these viruses are actually persisting in the landscape, like not in a bird, for as much as a year. Um, so there's, it's not just that there's sort of reservoirs within the bird population, but there's there's viruses that are just in the environment in the water. And for that to, to stick around in water for over a year and go through the, the, the freeze-thaw cycle, uh, it's kind of amazing to think about that. Yeah, yeah. You know, 
this was my first foray into working on the sort of virus analysis with Andy and his folks. And yeah, it was pretty amazing to me as well. So what you need to do now is next time you put a, a, a tarsal band on, you need to take a picture of yourself putting it on there and then go on a hunt in Arkansas or South Dakota. And then th this is a, have you ever heard this story about Nick Dockin? He, he put uh, up, I think a neck think collar so. on. And I know some other friends with similar stories. Yeah. <laughs> He put a neck collar, I think it was a neck collar on a, on a speckle belly, on a white front. And then he was, I think he was on the hunt or he was hunting with the guys that shot it. I can't remember the exact story, but basically he was in Arkansas and he was either with the guys that shot it either the day before or that day or something. But they ended up shooting the bird that I think he's got a picture of himself putting the neck collar on. And he was there when it got yep. shot, which is pretty wild. Yeah, and I have another friend, Chris Nikolai, who you might know the name as well. He used to be at Fish and Wildlife. He's now at Delta Waterfowl, um, who is actually um, collaborating with us on some of this GPS collar work. And I think he came up to my, my site to put some GPS collars on snows. And then later on that year, I think he was looking at the data and realized that one of the birds he had just collared was flying over his house. Um, oh, wow. Down in South <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> It's fascinating stuff, man. What what is there any other wild migration pattern stories that you can share with us? Uh, or some, know, um, some Yeah, I can't think of any off offhand. I mean, except that the journey that these birds make every year, you know, mostly migrate migratory birds. It's really just amazing to think about. Um, you know, they they fly from the north slope from the Arctic Refuge down to their wintering grounds in really just a straight push. You know, they might stop for a few days here and there. And on the way up in the spring, they do stage in the prairies for a few weeks. But, you know, it's, it's really a matter of, of days or weeks before they're from Alaska down to the California Central Valley um, or Texas, Louisiana. And it that in itself, just the normal migration pattern they do every year is still just boggles my mind to think of it. That spring migration, even if you don't hunt, just witnessing it is something I think everybody needs to see. I remember the first time when I moved to North Dakota, and I, I didn't grow up hunting snow geese. When I moved to North Dakota, I had some buddies that were like, oh, you haven't hunted snows before? You know, let's check this out. And I heard about it, and it was one of those days where the big push was on, and I, I couldn't hunt, but I took two hours, and I just drove west until I could find snow geese. And I remember just pulling over on this gravel road and it was just the entire horizon was just strings of, of flocks of snows heading north. It was one of those good migration days. And I just sat there for hours watching snows just pile pile over the top of me when those adults head, head back north. They're, they're, uh, they're in a hurry. And uh, it's, yeah. it's quite the spectacle to see for sure. Absolutely. All right, uh, VJ Patil, a wildlife biologist with the USGS up in Alaska. Fascinating stuff. Um, feel free to invite us along next time you do some banning because we'd love to see it. <laughs> and we just said any excuse to go to Alaska is a good one. But uh, no, anytime uh, you find some interesting research and uh, want to come back on, let us know. Otherwise, we might reach back out to you some, at some point. But uh, thank you. I appreciate you coming on to tell us about that tarsal band and what research is going on there and just giving us an update on uh, a new colony of snow geese breeding in Alaska, which I wasn't expecting that to be part of this. So that's that's really cool. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, this, so. and, you know, we expect the, the change that we're seeing in that landscape to continue. Uh, and I'll just close and say, like, I really appreciate you guys having me on and the chance to talk about the banding program and how important it is. So just remind 
all the folks listening that if you do get a banded bird, please, please report it. There's a website right on the band at www.reportband.gov uh, so we can get that information that we need. Well, you know, waterfowl hunters love their bands, but okay. I think the real trophy is learning about the migration research. Honestly, I mean, we all like to wrap them on lanyards or put them on mounts and all that stuff. But learning the behaviors of these birds is the best part of it, I think. Uh, VJ, thanks for the time today on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This has been the Finding Fur and Feathers Hunting Podcast, part of the Sporting Journal Radio family. Subscribe wherever you get podcasts or visit us at findingfurandfeathers.com. 852 million acres of public land, 147 million private properties, all in the palm of your hand. The number one hunting GPS app just got better. With hundreds of custom map layers, 3D and topographic maps, you can easily scout on the road or at home before you go. And now you can get important weather details, CWD detection, and even know what crops have been planted where. Get the most trusted hunting GPS app ever made. Onyx. Know where you stand with Onyx.